Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Allison Heilixer. Allison is a Singapore-based psychotherapist who specializes in working with adult individuals, couples, and professionals. She's the founder of Rethink the Couch, which believes that conversations about mental health should be accessible to all and that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to therapy. Allison has also launched therapy groups, including one for male refugees and asylum seekers in Hong Kong, and another for women experiencing postnatal depression and anxiety. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Allison, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I've been looking forward to it all week. For our listeners who maybe don't know who you are, would you mind just giving a brief intro introduction? Absolutely, Mallory. And thank you so much for having me on your very important podcast. Um, So my name is Alison Heilixer, and I live in Singapore. I'm the founder of a private therapy and coaching practice called Rethink the Couch, which was started years ago when I was living in Hong Kong. And basically in my practice right now, I see a range of clients, but the two things that we're talking about relate to either work or relationship challenges. And what I find really interesting about your story is how you ended up being interested in others and understanding like who they are and their stories. I know that you have found it in previous experiences that hearing people's stories allow you to learn about them and their relationships and their needs. And you had a really interesting experience um, in California when you were growing up. Would you mind telling our listeners about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was about 16 years old and I was in New York City, which is where I spent the first 16 years of my life. And I was walking to the movie theater with my father and he just said to me, how would you feel about moving to California? And I thought, well, why not? Right. I've got two more years of high school. Sounds good. You know, haven't spent much time there. I have lived in New York City so far. But what I didn't realize, Mallory, what I was saying yes to was a much bigger experience than just moving cross country. What I was really saying yes to was an experience into what life potentially would be like out in Asia. So when I got to California, I started working pretty soon after for a remarkable Japanese family called the Chino family. And they own what I think is still the most exquisite farm in the world in San Diego and in Southern California. And that really, I think, confirmed on a very deep level that somehow I needed to get out to Asia to spend my life there, to work with people, to help them carry their stories, to be able to support them in their struggles. And so my focus after I was working with the Chino family was somehow to get out to Japan. But Japan quickly turned into Hong Kong, and Hong Kong obviously is not really Japan, but it was close enough that 12 years ago, or 13 years ago at this point, I said yes to the opportunity to move out to Hong Kong to start working there as a psychotherapist, spent 12 years there, and then eventually moved to Singapore. So that move, I think, really crystallized my desire to be in Asia. Again, the original focus was somehow to make it out to Japan. And it was, yeah, I think one of the most formative experiences 
to really put me on a path that I never imagined when I was growing up, you know, in New York City as a little girl. And you really focus on all aspects of relationships, both like from a romantic um, standpoint and also professional. And what I really was so curious about is with romantic relationships, there's so much you can dive into, but it really starts with like the self work. And as I was preparing for this interview, I listened to some other talks you had and you really talked about attachment styles. And I feel like that's a big buzzword and a lot of people talk about it. You can go on TikTok and learn all about like the different attachment styles. Whatever your attachment style is really plays into both like romantic and professional relationships. Can you talk about how you've seen and really studied that so much in your work? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the the key points that you just made, Mallory, is how our ability or inability to to attach or really connect with other humans shows up in different domains. So I think it's really, you know, an illusion that people have that, you know, that that they attach or connect one way in their personal life, but professionally, they somehow are, are, are different people. So I'm really glad to hear you highlight that point. Um, so one of the beautiful things about working with people and really getting to know more about their relationships and, and really how they relate to people in the world um, is to understand that this is not something that's fixed. So, it, you know, for years, I think therapists used to think, OK, if you had one kind of connection or attachment in your childhood with your primary caretaker to caretakers, that eventually that's what would translate into your interpersonal relationships in the future. But I think one of the more promising things that I've learned from my practice, but also that the science and and the research is really backing, is that our ability to connect and attach can change throughout the lifespan. And the reason that's important is because if you look at worldwide, the idea is supposedly that 50% of the world has has what's called a secure attachment. I, I, you know, have trouble with that number because I'm not sure you know, worldwide, we can make a statement probably about anything. Um, But if we pretend that that's correct, that half the people around the world are able to secure, um, you know, attach securely with other people, then that still leaves one out of two who, who cannot. And again, one of the promising things is being able to work with people to re-engineer how they do connect with people so that if they do walk into relationships, having more of an anxious attachment or more of an avoidant attachment or more what's like a mixed, you know, kind of avoidant anxious attachment, what I try to do is really inspire through the idea of transforming this, that we are hurt in relationships, but we can also heal in relationships. So your ability to choose a partner or to choose a workplace that does provide more support and does provide more security is really a win for for you and the other person or, or the workplace. Because if you start off with someone or another workplace that is secure, that increases your chances that you are going to be a better worker or a better partner. And so it's sort of a win-win. Now, obviously, it can become very problematic, right, when people do have certain anxious or avoidant um, or disorganized attachment styles who then meet other people or other workplaces who have the same. But I never lose hope, Mallory. So no matter what people's starting point is, I truly see it as a starting point. And that's what's so um satisfying about my work is that I really try to help people go on a journey where they see what's possible. 
Um, they believe in the idea of transformation, that they're able to feel like they're part of this collaborative process where, you know, we can work together to try to get them to be in the healthiest relationships possible. And, you know, what I always say to people is, you know, if I can do it, so can you, right? And all the other people in the world who have made these changes are able to, then that should be inspiration that you can as well. What I find so fascinating is obviously you grew up in the United States, you're living abroad in Asia, and you're raising your kids there as well. Have you started to see from being raised in one culture and living and raising your kids in a different culture that like attachment styles or relationship patterns have changed or are obviously changed, but completely different? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, I I do have two kids who were both born in Hong Kong, who have both been put in Chinese schools, who are Mandarin speakers, who have very diverse group of friends. And so I, I do believe that there is a variation kind of in, in attachment, or how people relate to each other based on on cultural context. So I think, you know, based on when when we were living in Hong Kong, which is about 96% Chinese, or even now being out in Singapore, I think that there's a there's a clear delineation between parent and child or teacher and student. So I think in the United States, when I was growing up, there was a little bit more of that separation. I, I feel like, you know, and, and I haven't lived there for almost 15 years, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like Recently, those lines have begun to blur a little bit um, where there are not as clear boundaries between, you know, teacher and student or parent and child. And there's more of an emphasis, I think, in the U.S. at this point around, you know, specialness and, you know, every kid is, is, is super special and can do anything, whereas you know, and this is obviously a broad stroke, but I think out in Asia, which is more of a collectivist mindset is to, yes, of course, encourage students to, of course, you know, look at every child as a miracle, which is, which is beautiful, but also to be able to retain, I think, clear boundaries between parent, child, student, teacher is something that, that is very different. I think the ways of learning are, are very different out here, which I think does um, provide a different springboard for different connection between uh, students and, and teachers and, and caretakers. Um, and I think that also there's there's different attachment and connection based on, you know, other cultural values, not just collectivist values, but really around, well, I, I should say as an outgrowth of collectivist values, such as harmony, you know, of like trying to think through or to feel through how expressing yourself might affect other people. So other people in your family, other people in the workplace, um, so that that in, definitely impacts how people connect with each other. So yeah, I think it is quite different. It's almost like if if we imagine like a sliding doors if I'm raising my two boys in the United States, I think I would be teaching them largely, both implicitly and explicitly, how to relate to people very differently. So I think here the push is definitely more towards the collectivist values around harmony, around family, around loyalty, around very clear roles. Um and yeah, and I, and I have, you know, embraced that for what it's worth. When you're talking about values, it seems that post-pandemic, well, it started really in the pandemic, people really start to look at their values and what was important, both in interpersonal relationships and also just professional relationships. It seems like a lot of people in relationships really started to struggle a little bit or 
look at their needs in a different way. What did you see from some of your patients and those who were in like long-term relationships, how this like kind of reset or reevaluation took place? Yeah, you know what? I I saw uh, both sides of the coin through throughout the pandemic because, you know, I, I think the pandemic definitely put a stress on on all family systems or or, or all, uh, you know, all systems, right? Whether people were living by themselves, whether people were in partnerships, whether there were kids involved, and so I, I really saw both sides of the coin. I saw people who had very clear reckonings that this was not a particular relationship that they wanted to be in and they made a decision to, you know, separate or divorce. So I certainly saw a lot of that. Um, I definitely saw people reconnect, uh, sorry, um, recommit uh, with their partners and really felt that actually the pandemic, although very stressful, really reinforced their deep partnership and their ability to work as a team. So that, that was something that I also saw. And for people you know, who were living by themselves or who were not uh, part of a partner, I saw a lot of people actually really double down on when they were able to make certain efforts to try to meet people to make a stronger commitment than I've ever seen before. You know, I think that before the pandemic, people sort of leaned on, okay, well, they were going out, they were they were sort of meeting people. Whereas I think when the pandemic happened for people who are living by themselves is it was that sort of deep reckoning around, look, what are going to be some clear steps I will make if I do want to have a, a partner in my life? So yeah, I think it was just the pandemic really sort of stressed what was already there. So if you were in a relationship that was a bit shaky, it probably got shakier. If you were in a strong relationship, it probably got stronger, although still stressful. And if you were living on your own and you were happy to live on your own, it probably reinforced that. And if you were living on your own and you wanted to be a part, it, be part of a partnership, it probably forced you to to think about doubling down on your efforts when that became safe. So more extreme versions, I think, of what, what was at it, what was already there, for better or worse. It seems like that has kind of carried over a little as we've gotten vaccinated and come out of it. I know, at least for me, when we were kind of in that lockdown period, I at first was like, oh, this is great. Like, I'm home mm. and really enjoyed that kind of reset. But as it continued, I was like getting a little more anxious. I can't just keep being alone. It's lonely and I miss being around other people. And now yeah. that I have the option to freely move, it's I choose where I want to go. And if I want to yeah. spend time in on the weekends instead of going out, that's my choice versus feeling the need to keep going all the time or being stuck at home, that we're more mindful, I think, of yeah. our choices. Yeah, I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I think it is more around, you know, at, at first for a lot of people it did feel a little bit like a reset and then it got obviously, you know, very stale and 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 very um old very quickly. But I think you're right that there are a lot of people who are just kind of more mindful of how they are spending their time, their interactions, who really matters in their life, what do they really want. Um, so yes, I've I've certainly seen that as well. And continuing with the theme of relationships and the work you do, I heard you speak about something and it was a very big aha moment for me. And you talked about the kitchen sink issue when you're in a relationship and you both are avoiding issues and something might happen and you're throwing the kitchen sink at them. And it brought me back 
to uh, my personal, very long, like over a decade relationship. And when people ask how, why did it really work? I always say, well, we kept brushing the dust under the rug. And after a while, the rug was five feet off the floor just because I was young. He was young. We didn't know how to communicate. But that kitchen sink hits so close because I think that's something a lot of people do and they don't even realize they're doing it. Can you talk and explain what that issue is and um, kind of go into a little bit more detail about it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that that is a concept, I think, for most people who are part of a couple once once it's explained, like they sort of get very viscerally. So I, the, the kitchen sink, the idea is that when one person or both people in a couple brings up an issue, the issue itself So let's pretend the issue itself is something related to finances, right? The issue itself tends to get buried under a whole host of other dirty dishes or other dirty pots and pans. So if you imagine, right, the finance conversation being one dirty dish that the couple needs to clean, right, and really figure out what they're going to do about their finances, all of a sudden, when you start to bring in a hot issue, right, like finances, like sex, like in-laws, like marriage, like babies, like all the big stuff, um, it very quickly gets buried under a whole host of these other dirty dishes or other dirty pots that actually are not necessarily connected with the dish that the couple is trying to clean. So it's very common, you know, we we see it, it's more common as the years go on, right, that there are more potential dirty dishes or dirty pots and pans to pile up. But it's very common as a form of distraction from having a real conversation about what the focus actually is. So if partner A introduces a conversation about, you know, setting up a budget, right? Like let's pretend a couple never had a budget before and, and, and partner A tries to bring in the conversation about having a budget, partner B might say something like, well, you know, you're always trying to control me. And, you know, when we talked about having a baby, you know, you, you know, it was about the budget then and you didn't talk about what I really wanted. And so very quickly, the conversation veers off from talking about a budget to now it's like this whole suitcase of resentment is brought into to the couple and the conversation gets lost. It usually will get postponed, will get brought up again, but then there's usually a whole host of either new dirty dishes or or, or the same that are brought on top. So very, very uh, common when there's an issue that's uncomfortable, when there's an issue we want to avoid, when there's an issue we don't have the words for, really the tools to be able to navigate, to just keep piling on more stuff And then both people tend to get overwhelmed and frustrated and they just walk away from the dirty sink and they say, we're not, we're not cleaning any dish tonight. We're just going to walk away from the whole thing. I feel like there's listeners that are nodding their head going, yes, I've experienced that. Or yes, that's how we fight. What would you recommend? Because I've always heard that you need to learn to fight the right way in order to avoid that? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the idea is, you know, every couple has conflict, right? So so it's really a question of, of how do you navigate that conflict? And it's very tricky because, you know, it, these distractions or these other dirty dishes, what's, what's very sneaky about them is they tend to be kind of real issues, right? So partner A wants to talk about putting together a budget and then partner B brings in a suitcase you know, of resentments. And the resentments are typically dishes that should have actually been cleaned also in the past, but never were. 
So I, I think it's really a matter, you know, when we think about conflict, I, I think a lot of people think about it as, oh, you know, it's all about communication and it's a dialogue and, you know, you just need to sort of talk everything out. But I, I think there is really a value in being able to focus number one, on agreeing, first and foremost, what the conversation is about. So what I'll often say to people, Mallory, is that, you know, every disagreement, even if you're standing at the proverbial kitchen sink, and there are a 1000 dirty dishes is like, every agreement, disagreement should start with an agreement. So is the agreement that you and I want to spend our life together is, is our agreement that we want to get to a place where financially we are clear with what the budget is? Are we in agreement that, you know, by the end of this year, we'll decide whether we do want to have a baby, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the first thing is to diffuse this kind of idea that, um, you know, we're on separate teams and really bring people together and to recognize, like, I love this person. I do want to be with this person. And if you don't, obviously, that's very telling. And that's a different, that, that's that's something else in terms of what you'd have to do with the conflict. But if we imagine that we're on the same team, that we do love each other, then the focus needs to be on one thing at a time. And sometimes that one thing is a one week conversation where I teach couples a lot to learn how to take very conscious breaks that if emotionally they're feeling too much intensity to learn how to say to your partner, I need to take a break for 20 minutes. I need to go for a walk. I need to go for a run. I need to splash cold water on myself and we'll talk about it after that. Or I need to place a 24 hour moratorium on this conversation because my emotions are too intense. So the first thing is, can we agree on something? Can we agree also on the focus? Can we agree that we're team members? And can we also agree that we'll, we'll take as many breaks as necessary, but we are not going to drop this conversation because if we drop the conversation that just becomes, you know, a potential dirty dish in the future. The other thing I think to, to be very clear about when we talk about conflict is to be very mindful around kind of the power differentials in couples. So, you know, the question when, when we think about con uh, conflict, you know, some of the subtext is sometimes, you know, who really has the power, who's really in control here, right? Who gets to make the call about what the budget is, who who really has the power to say yes or no to, to a particular purchase or, or a particular decision. And so I think that being very clear about how to work with power and control in a relationship is probably more important than, you know, any particular kind of communication hack, but really on a deeper level, understanding what the relationship is between two people and to talk about not just how, how couples get through conflict, but how do they work through their decision making, even when it's a when it's a happy decision, right? When it's not necessarily something difficult, who calls the shots? How do they navigate it so that they're very clear when they do need to negotiate as a couple, which every couple does, versus when do they learn to give gifts to each other, which is just basically when do they sort of give in lovingly to their partner, knowing that they won't bring resentment in the future. So it really depends, Mallory, on kind of you know, how a couple has structured itself. Um, do they have conversations about power and control? Um, are they able to get to the subtext of the actual conflict, but also come to an agreement where they are able to connect with the love, with the teamwork, 
Um, and are they able to be smart about like, yeah, a lot of these big topics, we need to take breaks and we need to, you know, emotionally kind of calm our inner child down many times over before we're able to get to um, a solution. And there's also you know, sort of timing, right? People bring up stuff at all, all, all interesting hours of the day, you know, is, is keeping your partner up till 2 a.m. to talk about the budget really going to help the couple when one person's begging to go to sleep? Probably not. It's probably not going to go anywhere. So over the many years you've been in practice, what have been some of those aha moments where you've seen either a couple get through like a breakthrough or where you have watched something played out when you're like, wow, I wish everyone knew this piece of advice. Have there been those like nuggets that have come up throughout your career? I asked my therapist the same thing. Like what are those aha moments or those teachable nuggets you wish everyone knew? So the, the aha moments working with, you know, couples and relationships, I, I'll tell you just sort of, you know, some things that come to mind immediately. I think when people are able to extricate the word blame or entitlement from their vocabulary or from their, their, their kind of position in the relationship. So, you know, blame, entitlement, very kind of primitive things that go on in relationships where people will blame other people for their problems, blame other people for what's gone wrong in their life. They feel entitled to certain things or that they deserve. So I would say the moment, Mallory, that people actually are, are able to kind of drop that that vocabulary um, fr from the couple becomes a really big turning point. And I think with that, when people are able to dislodge themselves from some victimhood in the relationship, you know, this person's making me act like that. This person makes me feel that way. Um, if only I hadn't been with this person, I'd be able to realize my dream. So anything that smells like victimhood, I think when people are able to dislodge from that position, that often makes a very big difference in the relationship. Other times, certainly, again, when we really work through some of the power imbalances, um, that can be hugely helpful. Um, I think also when people soften a bit into what I mentioned earlier, into being on the same team or remembering that they love each other, I think those are often very pivotal moments. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say that. I, I think, you know, when people also are very clear and are able to articulate, you know, why they want to make certain efforts in a relationship, like why that really matters. I think that can be, you know, really pivotal. So I'm thinking even of a couple I was working with recently and, you know, they came in and they had been together for 20 years and they were basically deciding whether they should stay together or whether they should separate or, or, or possibly even divorce. And so, they were describing basically falling out of love with each other. And it had been, you know, probably about the past three years or something that they had felt this. Both of them had felt it. And, you know, it was a sexless marriage at this point and all that. And I basically said to them, you know, in any long term relationship, people will fall in and of love with each other. But that is very different than actually wanting out of a relationship. So, Basically, I want you to go away. I, I don't want you to come back to therapy until you can really start to talk about whether it might be that you're you're out of love and we'll talk about kind of how to reconnect you or whether one or both of you really does want out because that's a very different 
you know, trajectory. And so they both went away. They they came back and they said, you know what, we didn't even know that that was really a thing that people fall out of love. We just sort of thought like that was the beginning of the end, that if we both were out of love with each other. And so I think people who, who are able to think through, you know, on a deeper level, what really matters and, and are able to articulate the work that they're willing to do or not willing to do in a relationship are also very clear aha moments, because that allows me even as a therapist to say, okay, let's all just be real with what work you're willing to do or not willing to do. Because if you're willing to do this amount of work, I can tell you that's probably going to get you here. But if you're not willing to do that work, then, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to reach your goal. And then the last thing I would say, um, Mallory, that's that's a real aha moment is, and this actually connects with the kitchen sink point, is every relationship long-term, there'll be some resentment, right? So like, I've never seen a relationship, you know, a long-term relationship, but there's not, you know, at least an ounce of, of resentment. But I think the couples or the individuals who are able to psychologically demarcate, like that was then and this is now, and they're willing to release their partners from like being held in history in a time where they felt like they were duped or they were fooled or, you know, that they blame their partner, but they're willing to give their partner a chance to essentially be a different human. That is really, really important. Or even when I work with individuals where they're able to demarcate, okay, I used to do that, right? I used to blame other people or I used to, um, you know, never believe in myself, but today's a different day, or I'm in the progress of, of being able to change. So being able to demarcate that was then, this is now, is really powerful psychologically because it puts people in a much more empowered position. It puts them in a much more forward-facing position. And I think it also honors our own humanity and other people's humanity, which is, yeah, if we all hold each other in history or, or ourselves in history, you know, it's going to be a tough place to, to, to feel good about. And what comes to mind when you're saying that now is when you get into an argument with someone, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship, and you say, it's fine, I forgive you, let's move on. And then six months later, you get into a fight about something else, and you bring up the thing that you said you had forgiven them for, but clearly you're still holding on to that. And I guess, I don't know if that's really the kitchen sink to it. You didn't really do the work. You really didn't forgive them. I do think that how we look at early relationships and those patterns that we see when we're growing up definitely comes into play around how um, we act in our relationships. So if you grew up in a household where you saw resentment or things where people would bring up something five years ago, this happened and you didn't support me then. And now you're not supporting me here. How, what advice would you give to those listeners who might've grown up in a really in a household where they saw that pattern, but they don't want to replay it in their own personal lives? Yeah. And, and it's a very, very powerful, powerful force. You know, when, when you really witness someone, you know, very deeply parked in that position of resentment you know, even subconsciously, it can take many, many years to bring that to the forefront of, wow, you know, I actually watched my my parent or both of my parents kind of parked in that same position. And here I am, right? Like this, this feels very, very familiar. And what I'll often ask people is like, okay, who who has their thumbprint on this, right? Was there someone resent, resentful in, in your home? And what I try to really teach people, Mallory, is that 
you know, there's something there's something very human about holding on to what sometimes is called like a negative love attachment, which is like when you make yourself recognizable to your parent, even if it's a very negative kind of way. So if your parent's resentful and you're able to show that parent that you're resentful as well, there's a little bit of like almost like a dark bonding going on. So I try to teach people that it's very human, that it's a way to try to connect right with a parent who may not have paid much attention to you before is like, why don't you just become just like them? And that way, you're recognizable and you sort of seal that bond. But, you know, what happens is, and and this is particularly striking, I think, when people have children where they then look at the generations to come and, you know, I asked them, do you want to hand your children a blueprint of resentment? You know, would you like to teach them to be resentful in their relationships or would you like them to relate to people differently? So that can often be... Um, very powerful. But I think even people who don't have children, I think breaking that generational, um, very dark uh, contract can feel uh, quite empowering. So what I do then is to say, you know, it's not a matter of like just cutting your parent off or saying, oh, they were all bad, right? Like many people are just sort of doing, doing the best they can with what they have, but it's more, can you, can you relate to them differently? Right. Can you start to believe that maybe you still will be lovable, even if you make yourself a different human being in a relationship? But yes, it's very, very difficult to um, to change. The, The hardest time to change it is when people genuinely admire or really kind of look up to that parent who was, for example, resentful. It's much easier when they can see a disconnect and say, oh, you know what, maybe I was trying to connect with that parent subconsciously or just kind of repeating it. But it's much trickier when they actually believe that that resentment um, actually served the parent quite well or they really admired it. But it's never, you know, it's never too late. And I think people, it's hard to unsee things. So I think once you do make those deep connections, in terms of how you're repeating patterns, um, a lot of people become very uncomfortable with continuing as is. I think what the work you do is just so important and there's so much for people to learn about themselves and in relationships. And honestly, like each time I talk to someone who's helping others, I learn so much and I know listeners do too. In 2022, you started donating 10% of your proceeds to the Mekong Club in Hong Kong. I was fortunate enough to have Matthew Friedman on the podcast a little while ago, and I look forward to speaking to his wife, Sylvia, shortly. But can you talk to us about why the Mekong Club, and just as a reminder, if listeners didn't listen to Matt's episode, that is the organization that works to end modern slavery and human trafficking in Asia. And I love that you give a portion of your profits to the group. Can you just talk to us about how you got involved? Yeah, absolutely. So I met Matt years ago in Hong Kong, and was very interested actually in doing pro bono work for um, asylum seekers and refugees in Hong Kong. So when I first got to Hong Kong, I was doing some pro bono work with lawyers who were actually working to to defend some of the asylum seekers and refugees. And then eventually I started working with the asylum seekers and refugees myself doing, doing some counseling work. And I started 
the first group in Hong Kong, um, the first therapy group for men who were asylum seekers and refugees. And I connected with Matt after hearing about his tremendous organization. And, you know, he and I had a few events together and we just sort of, you know, got along in terms of what, what our perspective was. I think Matt also right from the beginning, you know, came across as someone who was clearly on a mission. Um, I very much, you know, trusted the work that he was doing. He had, you know, tons of years of experiences. And so it became an organization, the Mekong Club, that I implicitly just trusted for the actual work they were doing, the leadership that they were under, the way that they were allocating their funds. And I got to see Matt in action. You know, I got to see him actually, you know, working with people. And to me, it just made sense that if I was going to choose a life of, of trying to be of service to other people, you know, as a therapist, that I could start to give to people who, you know, really needed it in terms of, you know, being very under-resourced, really being below the poverty line. Um, and so that's how we got connected. And, you know, Sylvia, his wife, is is obviously, you know, a tremendous person in her her own right and really works very tirelessly to to also help with the mission and so yeah it was just sort of a no-brainer that there were these two incredible people on a mission didn't veer from the mission stayed very focused and they were doing work that um i strongly believe that the world needs and in fact most people you know when you use the term when anyone uses the term modern slavery don't don't even believe that there are people who are enslaved i mean genuinely do not believe it yeah that episode opened my eyes so much after i spoke with him the first time when we did our our prep call i got off the phone and start calling people saying, did you know this is happening? Do you realize this is going on? Whenever people ask me, oh, what episode should I listen to? I kind of give a, a range, but I say, if you want to really be educated about a topic you don't know about or you will not believe it's going on, listen to Matt's episode. Because yeah. it was so eye-opening. And obviously, I'm sure for you, you're working with those individuals who have gone through some of the most like horrific experiences that the majority of you know society is lucky to never have to experience. Um, do you still do that work now with individuals? Yeah. So so in Singapore, um, where, where I've moved to just since March, I haven't done any of that work, but I continue to support you know through obviously giving. Um, through the Mekong Club, and my hope is to do some more pro bono work here soon. But I, I think you're you're right, Mallory, in terms of people being utterly shocked around, you know, what what is actually going on, um, and and really understanding that the the human experiences, right, of, of some people who are enslaved around the world, like they don't really fit the shape of like a psychology textbook, which is one of the reasons. I do feel so strongly about the the mission is that unfortunately I think my field in in some ways has sort of failed to to really articulate and be able to support people's experiences where you know I'd hear therapists smacking on you know diagnosis as like oh you know this this person is depressed and it's like it, it really has nothing to do with you know using that label or another this is something that you know, is on a totally different level than, than again, anything that's in the DSM or any diagnostic manual. So I hope to recommit to the work, yeah, sooner than later. 
And then what else are you looking forward to kind of exploring or working on in the next few years now that the world's opened up a little bit? Yeah, so definitely, you know, in the future, I'd love to expand my reach to other countries in Southeast Asia. So I think a lot of people obviously are are more used to doing virtual therapy. So I'd love to reach, you know, pockets around Asia where, you know, it's either underserved communities that don't have access, you know, to therapists or people who do live in communities who who might have the resources to seek therapy, but, um, you know, there may not just be therapists in the area. So one is expanding, you know, across Asia, but for now, it certainly is to focus on building the practice in Singapore and, you know, trying to build up both the therapy and the coaching part of the practice. Uh, I'm hoping to finish the book, you know, sooner than later and hopefully have that published in the next year. Definitely over the long term, more pro bono work, more sort of getting involved with, you know, the different causes, some of which we've already discussed. And I hope to you know, eventually be able to teach a bit and to be able to expand some of the skill sets of, of therapists and coaches in this region. Well, I'm excited to watch all that happen. I have no doubt that you will accomplish that. And obviously, anyway, uh, myself or the podcast can help. Please let us know. I end every episode with the same three questions. The first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? Raise your hand and then figure it out. I love that one. That's a good one. It's a good one. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? I, today and any day that I'm breathing and, and alive. And then finally, the last question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? I'm going to go with a rather kind of subdued one, which is an REM song, which I'm clearly showing my age here, but an REM song called night swimming and it's a it's a beautiful exploration into what it's like to bear being naked in this world and and just kind of swimming in the night and and the moonlight and the imagery is very powerful as are the themes so i'll add that song to the for your listening pleasure theme song playlist on spotify so listeners can hear your theme song along with all of our other guests Allison, thank you again so much. I know how busy you are. I'm so thankful and grateful that you took some time out of your day to chat with me. And I'm just so excited to see what's next for you. Thank you so much, Mallory. And thank you again for including me on this very important podcast. I know how passionate you are about people really opening up to people's stories and and connecting the very, very human threads, no matter whether you're in Asia or the U.S. Well, thank you.